Okay, uh, I guess it seems like it's time to begin. I'd like to thank you all for coming here tonight to honor the poet Louis Zukowski and to think about his, as it says on the invitation, his influence and his achievement. And we have with us tonight some distinguished panel members and also some distinguished people in the audience and distinguished in the sense of the great archetypal something or other of poetry. And I'll leave that to your imaginations. But with us tonight are Robert Creeley, Allen Ginsberg, myself, Hugh Seidman, and Celia Zukowski. Carl Cozy was supposed to be with us tonight, but unfortunately had a reading he had to be at out in Southampton and couldn't get back in time. He promised us if it was at all physically possible, he would appear. So we'll keep our fingers crossed. Um, before I start, I'm just going to take something out of my briefcase. Um, I just wanted to announce a couple of things before we start. That in Maine, there is a person called Carol Terrell who edits a magazine called Peduma, which you will see on the Zukowski display. And Carol Terrell is putting together a book on Louis Zukowski. And if anybody thinks they would like to contribute some kind of memorial article to that book, uh, you might try writing to Carol Terrell. She is also putting together a book for Basil Bunting's 80th birthday, uh, or a copy of a magazine for Basil Bunting's 80th birthday, and would also be interested in seeing articles for that edition. And you can get the address from the Paduma magazines on Louis that are displayed on the table. Um, I guess I should also mention that after the symposium, there will be a discussion period. I think we'll just go straight through. And after the discussion period, if there is any discussion, there is a reception to which everyone is invited in one of the other, I think the room to our left. I think, I hope we're all here to honor Louis's memory. I think we are, I know I am. And to kind of get into the love of it in various ways that we had for the man, that I had for the man. And our first speaker tonight will be Allen Ginsberg. Good evening. When I was uh, a younger man, I wrote verse as taught me at 
the college that I attended, Columbia, which was primarily imitative of my own father's work and of the models that were proposed to me by Mark Van Doren and uh, Lionel Filling and uh, Raymond Weaver. Uh, the latter, uh, which had a uh, wider range of, in, of uh, interest in uh, modern poetry than most of the professors of the 40s and 50s, at least around New York. And uh, by some mishap, I broke away from that and fell into examining books of poetry in the browsing room at Columbia and ran across William Carlos Williams' book, The Wedge, which I didn't understand at all, because it didn't look at all like the poetry I had been writing or been taught to read. And I didn't know how to read it as spoken voice. Uh, so I went to see Dr. Williams and uh, began trying to read what he wrote, but still stumbling over it. And I wasn't able to understand it until I'd, uh, I heard him read in 1948 at the Museum of Modern Art and realized uh, he was reading the clouds and pretended to uh, Plunging on a moth with his mire rose. And he ended the poem with a series of dots. And I said, Oh, he's just talking. Then I went to see Dr. Williams. And uh, he suggested a number of other poets to read if I was interested in examining that kind of uh, poetry. And so then began looking up all the examples I could find, which in those days seemed very rare of poets practicing some kind of modern measure, or I had br been brought up on uh, the idea of the iambic verse or free verse, and I didn't know <laughs> that within what was called free verse, there were actual practitioners of, of an art, and uh, a selection, and uh, precise ear, a measurement of quantity, the length of vowels. Uh, uh, people who examined typography from the point of view of breath stuff, uh, speech, Suggestions, suggestions for reading as a score for speech. And so I chanced on the Rizikowski's work, really. Uh, that was uh, an opening for me of a whole new territory, very late, actually, in the century, not taught in schools at all, uh, because it was work of innovators were actually working with the raw material of their own senses, working directly with their perceptions of the world and finding technical means of transferring them into language as immediately as possible, as considerately as possible, but as accurately and precisely as it could be done. Uh, I began reading as years went by uh, through a whole series of <laughs> people who seemed to be completely innovative in their method. Uh, a lot of very odd people, like Marsden Hartley, whose work is still not very well known. I thought his books aren't available now, but his poetry is very, very fresh and direct, though not as preoccupied with form as uh, Louis Zikowski or William Carlos Williams. And so finally, the, the poets who seem most to put their attention to the arrangement of words on the page, relating it to speech, to measuring the line, to finding a balance of line, 
seen Marion Moore, perhaps counting by syllables, pound, encouraging uh, an ear for uh, quantity, Tukoski, encouraging both attention to quantity, or what Pound called the tone leading the vowel, uh, or, or hearing of the tone leading the vowel. Uh, there's a, the tones that go up and down and how they lead one to another in a sentence when the intention is spoken, when there's actual affect in the, in the syllables, syllable by syllable, how there is a musical quality to begin with in ordinary speech. So it was, in a way, a discovery of the uh, subtleties and rhythms of uh, what then Buddhists call ordinary mind and ordinary mouth or ordinary speech. And among all of the practitioners uh, of attention to that, Bukowski's <coughs> texts were probably the most refined and the most puzzling, the most difficult to, to understand the techniques of for me over the years. So I've been reading it very slowly over the years. I can't call myself a uh, expert, particularly, but the very quality of mindfulness and sensitivity uh, uh, accompanied with his uh, relative social isolation and uh, purity of uh, uh, personal manner, purity of life, uh, attentive, domestic, private, attention always on, to me, at least to my young eyes, attention always on uh, quality of language and uh, quantity only in the sense of measurement of his own language that uh, served as a model for me in a uh, period of great storm and uh, publicity or things, served as a model of uh, uh, manners, uh, humor, a kind of a, a rectitude and courage in pursuing uh, near scientific studies of the musical qualities of language and the measurement of the length of the sound and its placement on the page. So, there was very little theory about that available. Only a few paragraphs and a few writers were of any use as criticism. A few lines of Williams in his uh, introduction to the wedge, I think. Uh, on this point of just the shift of language from, uh, from one form of what was called in those days classical measures, its traditional measures, to uh, modern, relativistic, post-Einsteinian measures of American speech. Uh, a few lines of Tukovsky, uh, uh, a few pages of Pound and How to Read, serve to provide slogans or guideposts or signposts for in, uh, relatively innocent young uh, kids just trying to figure out how would you ever begin with all the raw material we hear in our own ears to select what is poetic and what is uh, measurable. Uh, where do you pay attention? What do you pay attention to? Where do you begin paying attention to it? So 
Williams's phrase, no ideas but in vain. Uh, another phrase, I think it's that uh, clearly is quoted in his comments on a cited with the eye hit. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't remember that. Made sense. Uh, a single line of uh, criticism of the sonnet, um, or of the, the Eliotic forms that were practiced in when I was a student, the work of other formalists seems also to group from the stem of English influence, perhaps via Eliot. In any case, the linear and stanzaic entailing do not possess Eliot's thought of craftsman's accomplishment. Their steadiness is that of truncated emotions. <laughs> and it, it's just a, a perfect uh, uh, clarification of what exactly is wrong with the hand-me-down forms that I was uh, working with while imitating Louis Untermeyer. Or <laughs> <laughs> Arlington Robinson, <laughs> or even Wyatt, uh, and that, uh, and later, Tchaikovsky's uh, attention to rest and breaking time in in the line led me back to uh, studying uh, the singers, Campion, and finally attention syllable by syllable to the uh, tone of uh, words that I was using led me to look back at Blake's songs of innocence and of experience and to begin to hear the uh, spoken tones and then try and extrapolate from those spoken tones to make tunes and music. So that, in brief, has been my uh, uh, teaching from Louis Zikowski and uh, my application of that teaching. Uh, I, I ran into Alan in the street one night before this uh, symposium and he said to me, well, I, I don't know anything about Zukowski and uh, obviously he knows much more than he thinks. <laughs> uh, Alan, would you like to read anything of Louise? Uh, or you don't have to, but it would be... Okay. Um, I'm next on the bill here. Um, I come to this via having been Louis' student uh, back at the Polytechnic Institute of Brooklyn, if you can imagine such a thing, where Louis taught uh, from 1947 onwards until sometime in the 60s. Uh, I came there in 1958, and I knew him from 1958 to 1961. And after that, I mostly lost touch with him except for a few letters and so on. But he was the person, I suppose, who made me become a poet or changed my life in that direction. And uh, when I knew him at Poly, I did not think of myself as a poet, nor did I want to be a poet. I was studying mathematics and physics and uh, thought that this is the career or the life I would pursue. And I basically came to him out of uh, love or something like that. I never thought that he thought that I was a very good poet in those days. Uh, and I didn't really mind that too much because, as I say, I didn't really think of myself as a poet. Um, there was one man in our class who was in the ROTC 
and I think that Louis thought he was the best poet around at that time. This, this person, I don't know whatever happened to him, but he, he seemed to have some conflict between masculinity and poetry. He felt that, I suppose, it seemed that he felt that there was something a little unmasculine about being a poet, and it troubled him, although he was a very good poet. So I say, I don't know what happened to him. What I wanted to do tonight, I think, just briefly, uh, since I didn't know what I wanted to do tonight, I just kind of took what came up out of the void. And what came up out of the void was reading a few things of Louis from A12, because I wanted to read something of his from something of the poetry. Uh, and A12, at the time I knew Louis, he was very present. He had just, in 1960, he had published, I think around that time, Sid Corman had published A1 to 12 in an edition of, I believe, 500, which Louis, we bought from Louis, the people in our, we had a poetry club and people bought this book from him. And uh, the kind of wisdom that A12 tried to manifest itself was very close to us. I say us because there were other people at Poly at that time who loved, who also loved Louis. Uh, we first came to him because we heard there was a poet in the school. We didn't know who he was or what he was. And we just were on the literary magazine. And we asked him if he would advise us. And for some reason, he said yes. And uh, we, we then grew to learn what an what a awesome figure he was at that time. I was, I was 18 years old. And he certainly was awesome to me in those days. He still is, but <laughs> it, was a, it was the, the way the father is awesome to the, to the, to the son. And uh, he would tell us things in class and in this poetry club. And some of the things he told us were the things in A12. Uh, it would not be out of place to say that many of Louis' writings are very abstruse, very, they push you very hard. As someone said, they're always on, they have you to an edge all the time. As I think as Robert Duncan said, they, they sort of pare you down, they pare down the essentials to the essentials. And they don't give you much leeway. But the, some of the things in A12, it almost seemed that, that Louis gave us a little leeway. He, he let in a little air in a way that he might not have ordinarily, and I, we, we sort of loved that. And he, he once said to me about the uh, writings about his father, which I found incredibly moving. He said to me that he himself had found it moving when he read it back to himself. So what I wanted to do, I suppose, was uh, read some of those just briefly and, and maybe comment a bit on a few of them. Um, before I do that, I guess I should say that as a, as a young poet, I guess because I was a young poet, I mean, I was writing poetry, I didn't think of myself as a poet. He, he, he told us that we had to have a common order of speech. Whenever we get too windy or too literary, he hit on us that way. He, he always stressed the, the non-academic. In other words, he wanted, he wanted something as pounded that, that could speak to people. 
in, as if you, nothing you wouldn't say to someone in the heat of emotion, as Pound, I think, has put it. One of the great things he told us was emotion is rendered by cadence, which is something I shall remember till the day I die. Uh, and in, in, in one of the courses we took with him, he used his book, A Test of Poetry, which, which uses the comparative method. If you want to tell how two poems are, you put them together and you see which one is better. Okay. In, in Patterson, in, this, in Patterson, William says, it is dangerous to leave that which is badly written. A chance word upon paper may destroy the world. Watch carefully and erase while the power is still yours. And Louis said, if each time a man writing a word thought it most completely distills him or did not write it, He talks about his famous poetics, which we, he compared to an integral. And I suppose to people, to most people, that would kind of seem weird. To people at Poly, who were, we had to take required calculus all the time, integrals seemed just like something you used every day. He said, I, I'll tell you about my poetics. An integral, lower limit speech, upper limit music. which was something he always told us, that the poem is always trying to become song. Another thing he, he told us was that each poet writes the same poem all his life. On page 214 of A, he says, each writer writes one long work whose beat he cannot entirely be aware of. He told us that even though people might think he wasn't doing anything, he was always working. On page 246, he says, a poet is never idle. And Louis was very thin. He was incredibly thin, almost emaciated. He says, how thin you look. No one says you've been suffering from poetry again. Repo. As I say, the thing that though really blew us out and the us again, I, I feel compelled to somehow pay to remember my friends at, at Polly who as I say who loved Louis the way the way we all did. The wisdom, almost rabbinical kind of wisdom. He says, the best man learns of himself to bring rest to others. Reject no one and debase nothing. That is all around intellect. My friend Louis Pino at Poly always used to say, the world's a tough place. Most of us aren't going to get out of it alive. Louis, which he stole from Louis, of course, and Louis says, to get out of the world alive, despite, despite, to live among ordinary men and yet be alone with him, 
to greet profanity and from it draw the strength to live, said the Baal Shem. He seemed to be struggling kind of to a kind of morality, like right reason. Much later on in A, he says, everyone will explain to us how to do the wrong things the right way. He was interested in science. He wrote a famous poem about a capacitor. If you read his writings, there are other things in science that are always in there. He taught at the Polytechnic Institute of Brooklyn, which was about as far from the beautiful as one could imagine, I suppose. He invokes, he invokes Einstein in a couple of passages. This first I always remembered. He said, Every, Einstein, everything should be as simple as it can be, says Einstein, but not simpler. And, and someone asked Einstein what the speed of sound was, and Einstein replies, what speed has sound? Why, I don't know. I don't weigh down my memory with facts I can find in a text. And another line, I shall truly remember till the day I die. Don't learn for revenge. Question and question, do not be ashamed so that all misery may go up into the air with smoke, which I think is magnificent. And a little, said the Hasid, if you, don't, if you do not lord, yet wish to redeem Israel, at least redeem the Gentiles. <laughs> And the section in A that talks about his father, which, as I say, to me was uh, the place in, in Louis's work that I know of anyway that, that answers all the attacks in that direction. He says of his father, everybody loved Reb Pincus because he loved everybody. Simple. You must, myself, as father of Nicomachus, say very little, except what such were his actions. And he quotes Rabbi Lieb as saying, what is the worth of their expounding the Torah? All a man's actions should make him a Torah. And Reb Pinhas says, there is no one who is not every minute taught by his soul. And a disciple asks, if that is so, why does it not rule? And the rabbi answers, the soul teaches, it never repeats. In Bottom on Shakespeare, Louis put the proportion, love is to reason as eyes are to mind which meant that if you saw as well as you thought, love and reason would flourish together as one. 
And he says, can reason spring from false senses? And he talks about the eyes. Speak against them unless they are true. Reason is false. And this is one that I love. Since no one cares about anything he does not love, and love is pleasure that dwells on its cause, he who loves keeps what he loves. Louis turned me on to Ezra Pound. And of course, I fell in love with Ezra Pound because I, I fell in love with Ezra Pound's ear. And And Louis, Louis will always exhort us to read Canto 13, which is the Confucian Canto, because, among other reasons, it was the one, one of the few places, perhaps, in town where you didn't have to know anything. You could just read it and get it, as it were. And in Canto, Canto 13, if I, uh, Pound says, if, I'm, if I mispronounce the name, for one, Yang sat by the roadside pretending to be receiving wisdom. And Kung, who was Confucius, said, you old fool, come out of it. Get up and do something useful. And Louis's version of this is, he who knows nothing loves nothing. Who does, not, who does nothing understands nothing. Who understands, loves and sees, believes what he knows. And the last few things I want to read are about the family. Paul, Celia. These are mostly, I guess, about Paul and the idea of the father, as Louis talks about his own father. He says, it means, Paul, if a man sees a thing when alone, he goes right away to look for someone, to show it, so he may hear more and more of it. You see... That's why I don't want any of us to sleep late. And, and Louis, uh, I think Louis loved little stories. He, uh, there's a, f a famous story in A that Sid Corman talks about so well in that issue of Paduma about the dog and the hamburger. Uh, these are two little stories about fathers. Take, for instance, the man who defended striking his father, saying... My father also struck his father, grandfather his father, and pointed to his child. And he'll strike me as soon as he grows up. It runs in the family. <laughs> or the man who dragged on the floor by his son asked him to stop at the door, for he himself had dragged his father that far and no more. And uh, the, last, the last little thing is, is about love. When Paul tunes his fiddle, the piano needs tuning, he says. I was right. The note was right as I played it the first time. And Celia says, his ear is better than mine. That is love. Thank you. The next speaker will be Robert Creeley.
Obviously, that Louis Zukowski were here. The, the value of that man is extremely hard to enclose or to qualify, no matter how much, obviously, humanly one would, would want to do it, to pay the homage absolutely deserved. I think, as Alan suggests, and Hugh also, particularly for Alan's and my generation, the, the information. of poetry, both possible and actual, had been peculiarly distorted, uh, just that the, that the teaching then usual in either Columbia, where Alan went, or Harvard, where, where I was, had become, I think, rather, uh, rather complacent. And also at that time and in those places, the presumption that critical writing in this country would prove the actual valuable literary exercise of the time. I remember, for example, a, a note in the uh, New York Times book review sometime in the early 50s saying that in mid-century it would seem that the largest contribution of writers in this country would prove to be critical work. That despite Williams had found of many of the other people so obvious. So that I can remember as a student at Harvard uh, after the particular, well, Professor Andrew Wani, <laughs> After he'd discussed the uh, the first published work of Wallace Stevens, Harmonium, and we were then to consider the subsequent work, which consisted at least of six or seven books by that time, say the early about 44 or five, uh, he came into the classroom and looked at us all and said, "I can find nothing to say about the later poems of Wallace Stevens except that they are very obscure." You know, <laughs> and. I think, you know, I'd hate to see Louis Zukowski's work become, uh, some imagine, quote, difficulty, disorder. In other words, I can't believe humanly that um, that which stretches one's abilities to, to know something has therefore to be avoided. I mean, we had a rather remarkable instance of this dilemma with the Three Mile Island situation where Obviously, the nuclear regulatory agencies didn't literally know <laughs> all that it might be presumed to know. So that we must recognize that some things are difficult. You know, we can't. As, as Einstein said, <laughs> and Louis wisely quoted, you know, you can make things as simple as they can be, but not simpler. So in any case, my first information of Louis Zukowski was really the, the dedication in Pound's Guide to Culture to Louis Zukowski and Basil Bunting's Strugglers in the Desert. And then trying to discover texts of his, I, I really couldn't, despite the fact that in Cambridge in those years there was a, an active bookstore, uh, Gordon Cannon's Gordon Bookshop. And I was so, I never got into the library, Alan. I was scared to death of that place. Um, they wouldn't let you touch the books, etc. But in any case, uh, then I saw my wife-to-be at that point uh, did generously steal from me a copy of The Wedge, which, which was dedicated to LZ. And then it must have been about 54, uh, while living in Mallorca and having started, thanks to 
Charles Olson in Black Mountain College, uh, that magazine that effectively an offshoot of Origin, Sid Corman's Origin, uh, the Black Mountain Review, that we had this charming cataclysmic visitor, Edward Dalberg, <laughs> changed my life utterly in about five minutes. Um, in any case, he said, you know, this is an extraordinary man living in New York without uh, apparent publication, and you by all means should be in touch with him and, and, and publish his work. And so that was actually my first, first information of Louis Zukovsky's then present circumstance. And happily, not too long after that, I think within a month or so, uh, there came to Mallorca Robert Duncan and Jess Collins and Harry Jacobus. And as blessedly always, Duncan had everything I factually required with him. He had, uh, he had for example, copies of, he had a copy of Louis uh, Anou. He had this uh, very useful uh, review by William Charles Williams. And he taught me, as he always does, what I really had had to had to know, so that that began to center my own, not just my reading of Louis Zukowski's work, but my own experience of, imagination of, and, and actual information of what he constituted as the source in poetry. And then happily, I came back to this country to teach briefly at Black Mountain. I won't go into that story again, but. It, I'll never forget it, the, the coming up to New York with friends, I think Jonathan Williams was, was with me and, and uh, possibly another friend, uh, Tony Landro probably, and we were carousing rather meagerly in Greenwich Village, uh, actually beginning in the Lower the Cedars Tavern. And I'd happily been in touch with Louis Zukowski and Celia and therefore had written about the possibility of coming out to see them. I remember I was completely confused and I got on the subway, but was absolutely blown away by trying to discover the proper exit. So I went, I don't know where I went to this day. I was way out there and uh, managed to get back, but I forfeited my remaining 10 cents in that confusion. So I had to take my my 10 cents to get me back to, you know, back to the quote city. And so I arrived at their house on Willow Street, penniless. <laughs> Wouldn't you know it? And um, so the, I remember coming in, and the first thing I felt I should responsibly do was to make clear my dilemma before <laughs> I, you know, they could close the door in my face. But I had to obviously explain to them that I was penniless. <laughs> you know, and I remember Louis had that beautiful overcoat, which I literally had for years. And he said, Bob, would you mind my trying this on you so that I can see if the hem of the coat still has been, been fixing the coat for me, he wants to see if the hem hangs straight. So then he put on this overcoat. He said, there, you look much warmer and more comfortable. I said, you know, that's yours. And then remember, you gave me 10 cents and a $5 bill and a lunch. <laughs> it was incredible. Well, you know, that, that began an extraordinarily human and absolutely dear relationship. And Hugh Seidman generously asked me, in a, in a note previous to our being here tonight, if, if I might speak of, of, of Louis Zukowski's particular friendship. But to me, it was extraordinary. I, I'd be pretentious indeed if I claimed to be some extraordinary intimate of, of Louis Zukowski's life. I wasn't. 
but factually and truly in his in his care for me, I don't think I ever experienced more generous and particular regard. Wasn't I mean I'm not talking literally about whether he thought I was quote good or bad or anything else of that order. I mean his his perception and, and respect for me as a possible human event was, was impeccable. Uh, and I'm sure I stretched his limit. I remember one time coming to the house with with Bobby and, and we uh, we'd met a younger friend in the city and I not glibly but with some you know with some presumption brought this person with us to, to visit and he this younger friend in his nervousness managed to drink all of a bottle that you'd given your father for Christmas of brandy and he was slugging this charming brandy all through the evening we both sort of sitting there quietly watching the brandy go down and I saw Louis I think the next day and he said you know Bob two is fine three is a little too many <laughs> but most he for example again I think very very much as Alan was, was saying our need seemingly was was to have a source of a, a poet who could not just make clear to us but could regain for us the actual occasion of of the possible composition of poetry who wouldn't for example talk about only about publishers or what literary cliques had been authority or how to get on in that particular aspect of this situation. The, the extraordinary, uh, not just patience, but the extraordinary concentration and the, uh, the demands upon himself which he was capable of were to me absolutely uh, useful to, to witness and use as measure. I think that in any art, one of the absolute requirements is, is the uh, the sense of a continuity and the sense of, a, of, 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 of those who constitute for you or for me or for anyone thus engaged the possibilities of what the art can accomplish and make articulate. And these persons certainly are not confined to any necessary geographic place or, or to any particular chronological point of time. So that Louis brought back as Pound in, in, in obvious ways equally did the requisite commitment, the, the fact of concentration, the respect for the material, the literal words one was thus using. And he, yeah, he freshened the whole condition for me. Uh, Hugh Seidman mentioned the book that Sid Corman, I wish Sid were here tonight, he obviously and truly should be. Another friend dear to my own heart who should would one would want him to be here? Not be Paul Blackburn. Uh, and each of us, in that way, needed someone who not would listen to our whining, but someone who could serve as model for the possibilities of our own concentration and uh, and art. Uh, and there must have been times, indeed, in, in Louis Zukowski's life where the isolation and the the obvious limits of response must have been galling indeed. Uh, but the, I mean, I was given the, you know, the extraordinary honor and equally the job of trying to review the now collected A 
in 1,000 words or less. That's the ultimate telegram. Uh, but in any case, it, it struck me trying to think of a way to, to speak of that extraordinary work uh, that of all the, uh, quote, long poems of our immediate time, uh, A is the one that, 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 that comes, comes to full circle, so to speak. Uh, that is accomplished, and is accomplished, I think, specifically as an, as an art. Uh, it isn't in any sense to say the town's cantos are, you know, are lacking, quote-unquote, or that Williams uh, should have stopped with book four or something like that, or, or that H.D. did or didn't, you know. I'm not really thinking in those terms, uh, but I'm thinking of this concentration that took, what, over 40 years to, to, uh, to, to realize its own culmination. That's fantastic. I haven't really, it sounds absurd possibly to say it, but the only thing I recall in my own so-called history is one time writing to an old-time pigeon fancier in Lincolnwood, Illinois, a, a man named Mr. Schultz, who won that year, 48, a, uh, a prize for the best bird in the show, a, a red pygmy powder pigeon. And I wrote to him, asking how he did how he had accomplished the particular breeding of this pigeon. And he wrote me back this extraordinary letter in which he began, he said, in 1912, I bought two, and he rehearsed every step of the breeding from 1912 to 1948. And now that, yeah, that is to say that this kind of concentration, this kind of patience, and this kind of working in the world as a, as a commitment to its actuality is a remarkably uh, fragile and, and not too frequent a, a circumstance to witness. So that again, Louis Zukowski served us as this extraordinary sense of what, after all, poetry wanted of its people, and what, after all, one was committing oneself to if, if, if poetry was the art that was possible. Uh, in any case, the book that Hugh Seidman was speaking of, actually, Hugh, this was a, an edition of 200 copies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. and it was characteristically printed in Japan. <laughs> you know. uh, and the edition, I'm just looking here briefly at the, at the uh, information. The, uh, this first edition is limited mm -hmm. to 200 copies mm -hmm. printed by the Genshido Printing Company in Kyoto, Japan, December 1959. This again is the this is the this is the specific work of Sid Corman, and again an instance of the honor and respect which we, we had for this man. Uh, I'd like to read something because in the early '60s, during one of those quick times in New York, uh, I brought with me a, a microphone action. I think I remember borrowing Paul Blackburn's immense tape recorder, and the two of us went over to visit you, the Zukowski's, and I, Louis generously read and talked about his, his, his work as a poet, and in that, on that tape, as I recall, there's this extraordinary, well, extraordinary reading of A11, but there's also this, I realize that you and I are both attracted to A12, for this evening at least, there's this extraordinary um, section which I'd like to read as, as uh, Conclusions of my remarks. And I'll just do it. I'll never forget it. 
in peace, 200 years spruce at least, for a fiddle for Paul, save the heart of the wood, so to speak, and who belongs to it. Paul to Paul, recalled surely carved, not the chips of the prophet, whence are the stems? He sang sometimes, my son, when we let him talk, a chance lilt after prayers, a shred, a repeated word, his whole world as, like bottom, he might blunder on tumble salt for some assault, Paul. They sang this way in deep Russia, he'd say, and carry the notes recalling the years fly. Where stemmed the Jew among strangers? As the hummingbird can fly backwards, also forwards, how else could it keep going? Speech moved to sing, to echo the stranger, a tear in an eye, the quick hand wiped off casually. I loved to hear them, as I loved my poetics. Little fish, he grieved for his wife. He prayed to the full moon over the prow, alone on that trip, not seasick. He returned for a last look at Moss after the fire. His boy wept and would not let him go, but he kissed and kissed him and crossed the Atlantic again alone, this time to bring the family over. What did he not do? He had kept dogs before he rolled logs on the moon. He swam, dog paddled, that's the Paracelsus. What a blessing. He saw Rabbi Ishak Tehanan walking on the wharf in Kavno. The miracle of his first job on the Lower East Side, six years night watchman in a men's shop, where by day he pressed pants, every crease a blade, the irons weighed at least 20 pounds, but moved both of them six days a week, from six in the morning to nine, sometimes 11 at night or midnight, except Fridays when he left enough time before sunset, Margolis begrudged. His own business, my father told Margolis, is to keep Sabbath, sleep, he prayed, but he's dead, Sabbath. Moses released the horse for one day from his harness so that a man might keep pace. A sharp bench is dead, he rose, rested at four, passed the free night, befriended the mice, singing psalms as they listened, a day's meal, a slice of bread and an apple, the evening, what matter, his boots shone, gone and out of fashion, his beard he stroked, Paul, with the Sabbath, Prince Albert, I never saw more beautiful fingers used to lift bootstraps, a beard that went over, a jeering Italian, he wanted to pluck it, with the love his dark brown eyes always found in others. Everybody loves Red Pinkhorst because he loves everybody. How many strangers he knew, so many, said that to me every Sabbath he took me. I was a small boy to the bird store window to see the blue and yellow poly, the cardinal, the orchard, oriole. Everybody loves, loved Red Pinkhorst because he loved everybody. Simple. You must, myself, as father of Nicomachus, say very little except such were his actions. Thank you.
speaker this evening, and it's a very great honor, a very great honor to introduce her because she worked with Louis on many of the things. You, but I really am quite speechless by now. Uh, I think I was asked to talk about uh, collaborating with Louis um, in the matter of music and the guitarists. Uh, I'll try to be very, very brief. Uh, we always worked separately uh, in the matter of music, <laughs> and that was how we collaborated extremely well. Louis picked the poem that he wanted set to music. Uh, the fact is he could, had he known how to record uh, what he wanted, he could really have written them himself. Um, the, uh, he would read the poem and I would indicate notations whether he was reading in a duple, triple, or quadruple meter so that I would know what to do. All the rests, the pauses, or where there is a fermata in the music were determined by his reading, that is, where or whenever he happened to stop. Um, frequently, the um, intonation of his voice would rise or be lowered, and I would make little notations to that effect, so that I would more or less know whether I was to go up or down or stay on a plateau or whatever. Uh, and th that was just about it. Um, whether the particular poem was to be set for one voice, for two, for male voices, or female, or um, mixed, um, was a matter which didn't really concern him very much. It, that was left for me to do. And once I had, as I said, these few notes to go by, knowing what particular meter I would, or I suppose I should pull directly into this, uh, once I knew whether it was to be in, as I said, duple or, or triple or quadruple uh, meter, then I went ahead and did my work. When it was through, I would play it for him. Uh, while Louis had a, uh, a musical ear, he could not really carry a tune very correctly. And, uh, well, um, since he had a son who, whose ears are just uh, extraordinary. Uh, we didn't discuss it very much, but I would play it on the piano. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I, I should say the pause hearing was absolutely phenomenal because he could uh, not only tell you what notes he was hearing, the particular pitches, but he could play back whatever it was he heard, even if it was the bells that were being rolled along Willow Street uh, as the garbage people threw them down. Uh, in any case, I would play it on the piano, and uh, most, I think in almost every instance, uh, he seemed rather pleased. Uh, there are, I don't know if any of you have seen any of the autobiography music, uh, some of them uh, I would extend and do in the form of what is called a mirror canon or uh, around. Uh, 
all of the songs were performed uh, a few years ago by the Metropolitan Opera Studio and done very beautifully and very professionally because all those people uh, knew just what they were doing. There is a recording of it, and um, the Johns Hopkins Library is now collecting all of Louis' available tapes, and they do have a, a tape of that particular performance. Um, the, uh, in the matter of, um, I am not a composer. I mean, I have no composing to ever want to compose anything as any artist uh, is compelled to do his art. Uh, as I said, I did those things, as I, Bill Williams once asked me to set the Pink Church to music, and I did that too. Uh, but once, um, if no one asked, then I, I didn't do anything more with it. <laughs> uh, I, I had other composers, but not in, in the form of creating music. Uh, in the matter of A24, uh, Louis never, as a matter of fact, it wasn't intended to be A24. Um, I'm doing something else. I, I'm a great one for having files. I have all kinds of files. I have a letter file. I have manuscript files. I have um, oh, everything. And uh, the one thing Louis did not want are scrapbooks, though I have stacks and stacks of scrapbooks for Paul from year one. But for Louis, I kept what we called a dossier. And everything was recorded, you know, when he read where and why and how and or why he didn't and so on. And um, in any case, I was trying to collate and condense a lot of the material which had become extraneous or repetitious. Um, I, I did all of Louis' typing. Louis never typed everything that he wrote he did by hand. And, um, as I proceeded to collate and arrange a lot of these things that occurred to me, that though he always said so himself, that he was writing one thing all his life. And to prove it to him, I thought I would just arrange this as I saw fit. I used the one play that he did, Arise, Arise, as the central theme. I mean, that sort of runs in the middle, and then above it, I have two voices, and then there are two below. Uh, when I was all through, I thought I would amuse him with it and showed it to him. Whereupon he said, that's fine, this will be A24. Um, and uh, I, I thought it was rather silly, but he insisted and he put his name to it. So it became A24. Um, it, um, it, it is really all of his work. Uh, the only thing I did was um, the passages of his work, which I felt uh, were pertinent to the play as it proceeded. Uh, I did, um, instead of having the play performed as he wrote it, where one character uh, speaks to another, uh, I extracted each character's part and used that as a complete scene in itself. However, all the other material, whether it came from prepositions to criticism, or from poetry, or his short story, Ferdinand, and it was, um, were all intact, and uh, I applied them as I thought they worked. Um, I 
in San Francisco um, that has been performed, uh, and uh, I have a tape of it, which is quite curious and quite interesting. Um, I think that just about ends my collaboration with Louis on music. In the Latin, uh, the Catullus translation, uh, there again, uh, we always worked apart. Um, I did the groundwork. I would write out the Latin, indicate uh, all the accents uh, above the Latin word, indicate the long and the short vowels, and then below the Latin word, indicate the various meanings, because uh, there might be several or even contradictory meanings to a particular word. And uh, since Latin is a very inflected language, I would also indicate whether it was the dative case or the accusative, uh, which meant that I would indicate what preposition would go with it, you know, with, of, or by, or for, and so on. And um, then he had that to work with. And so that very often, um, oh, I, I could be done with oh, 30 or 40 of the Catullus Carmina where he was still on number one and number two. But it didn't matter because he used my material uh, as a kind of pony or a groundwork. And uh, when he was through, I typed his manuscript and that was it. And we always got along very well. But as I said, our collaboration was purely uh, on very private, very uh, individual. Uh, he had his own room where he worked, and of course the door was always closed. Louis was subject to draft. The windows were shut, the doors were closed. Um, I could work anywhere. I could work in the kitchen, on the kitchen stove, on the kitchen table, in the bedroom, in the living room. It didn't matter. Uh, I, I think I'd be glad to answer any questions I don't know what else I can say about uh, our collaboration. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you one question, uh, which I think I may have posed before, about why, was there any special reason that Louis wanted music in A, in the long poem? Uh, I know that the pound, I think Cantle 75 had music, which Paul had played certain times. Had this any influence on that desire, or he just wanted music in? Because most poems, of course, don't have music in them. Uh, basically, every poem has music in it. I mean, it, it's wrong to say that a poem has no music in it. I mean, it, uh, um, the very fact that it has a meter, a rhythm, it already uh, makes it music, in a sense. It's a question of knowing how or uh, wanting to record and recording it in a sense in a different language that is in a musical language rather than in a verbal language. But I mean, to say that this is music and this is poetry or this is prose um, is fallacious. It's it just, you know, it, it's not true. Um, uh, there is no question that a Pound uh, was extremely interested in music. Um, and so was Lou. I, I should start by saying that I didn't meet Louis until uh, almost the end of 1933. Now, um, while I uh, had been told uh, or learned uh, about his association with particular friends or music prior to that, uh, it, it really is of no consequence because um, 
I imagine that almost every living thing has music in him or in itself and is interested in music. So, you know, to say that Crown interested him or so. As a matter of fact, uh, the poem A uh, started out as a letter to William Carlos Williams. Bill Williams and Louis were to attend a performance of the St. Matthew's Passion and Bill could not make it that particular night into the city and Louis went alone. Uh, and his letter uh, writing to Bill, he was telling him about the performance, and in a sense, that was the beginning of A, which starts out with the uh, performance of the St. Matthew's Passion. Uh, so Louis always had this curiosity. It's true that while there was always a, a piano or, or some kind of a keyboard instrument in our house, he um, never could recognize where middle C was, but then he didn't want to. I mean, he, he you know, really it didn't interest him. Uh, nor was he even curious to want to be able to read music as such or to learn to record it. Uh, so that, uh, in a sense, I was a rather valuable asset because uh, I, I was equipped to do that kind of work for him. Uh, but, um, I don't, I, I can't really say, and as I, I say, I think it's erroneous to think that, you know, so-and-so and Mr. So-and-so influenced, you know, I, I feel that everyone has it in him. It's a question of bringing it out, and if one cannot uh, do the actual writing or recording, then you find someone else to do it for you. Did he ever suggest that he, that he himself sing anything? About or, the, or the only one that came close to it is the one that's to my washstand. And, you know, that is almost a kind of monotone, in a sense. <laughs> but uh, uh, I never had the audacity to tell Louis that he was almost a, mon a monotone. Uh, also, the harmonic um, background that I might indicate, uh, in a sense, uh, grew very easily, very naturally, out of the melodic line, so that, the, 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 you know, no big deal, and, and no, nothing really very curious or very original or very extraordinary about the whole thing. The intention was to, uh, in a, as he felt, to enhance the poetic line, if that was at all possible. And I, I think um, when those things are sung and sung correctly and sung well, they do enhance the poetry. But on the other hand, the poetry can stand on its own, you know, equally well. The method was extrapolating from the spoken tones to, to yes, that's up and as down. I when uh, well, that's very simple. When any poet reads a given poem, you uh, can tell whether he's reading in this particular rhythm or that, whether it's six eighths or three fourths or two halves or you know whatever. Or uh, I imagine today. Uh, I pull probably think I'm terribly old hat. I should say I suppose today people even read in is it four fifths or five fourths or seven fourths or nine or something or nine fourths something like that or eleven thirteenths. But in any <laughs> in any case, uh, the poet will have a particular pace as he reads. And whoever is there to record it can make indications and know, you know, what to, to put down.
as I said, I, I uh, am not an, an artist in the sense that I ever, you know, meant to write music or such, but I did have the ability to record what it was that he wanted done, as uh, with Williams's King Church, which, uh, and Bill thought that was very successful too. Unfortunately, uh, when it was printed in the Briarcliff Quarterly, the editor thought that the uh, accidentals which I indicated right after the cleft signs were of no consequence, and so he just cut off the cleft signs, the treble and the bass cleft, and of course all the accidentals. So <laughs> the, the, when you perform them, you, it is weird because uh, you are playing in no particular key, and as I said, I am very old hat and I always had a very given precise tonality to all those things. But Bill was very pleased with that particular thing. Oh, uh, one other uh, thing of his that I did was Turkey in the School. Mm -hmm. But that was never uh, printed or recorded because, and I, I felt as Floss did, she didn't like the poem and she didn't like it. Yes, but Floss said no, it was not to be printed. And I, I went along with Floss. Who answered that? Yes, and Floss uh, was very disturbed by the poem. She didn't know he was with me, and she didn't know he had sent it to me. Uh, I didn't know that she didn't know. <laughs> Getting very calm. Uh, in any case, uh, I, I felt that uh, I should honor her wishes, and so that was that. That's in your files now? I have the years, <laughs> yes. I, I, as a matter of fact, I no, that did not go to Texas. No, I, I really would feel as I did too. Uh, uh, if anyone did not want a particular, or was irritated by something, then it's, it's, it's no conflict, it's not that important. Uh, the poem exists, and uh, the music is inconsequential and doesn't mm -hmm. Okay, I guess that seems to be it for the speakers up here. Uh, at the risk of sounding like Ed Sullivan, uh, I did want to say that there are a few people in the audience that we, it would be great to hear from if they wanted to say something. One of those, I, I don't know how to quite broach this, one of those is George Oppen, if he feels like saying something, because certainly as much almost as Louis, he belongs to this night. Did you, George, did you want to say anything? <laughs> what about Mary? <laughs> <laughs> okay, Paul didn't want to say anything, I don't think, no. <laughs> Okay, I don't know if anyone else in the audience, well, we throw it open now to the, uh, to the audience. Did anyone a want to say anything, ask a question, or any such thing of the, of the panel, of anyone here? There was one little footnote I wanted to add. As well as George and Mary often being in town. And uh, Carl Matosi, this seems right. to be like old home week for this uh, band of companions who initiated 
so deep a revolution in American poetics. So Carl Rakosi read Monday night at Hawaii with Robert Duncan, who has studied work of Alvin and Rakosi and found and Tchaikovsky and Williams. So one characteristic of all the poets is their durability. Whatever the difficulties of life, everybody came, everybody landed on their feet, and it's on heaven and earth still singing. Yeah, I I wanted to I guess add something to that too that I've been thinking all night about this problem that in in just wanting to say a little something about this kind of landing on your feet. When I knew Louis first, he was so obscure. I mean, he was practically in the grave, and I think I heard the story as I said that Sid Corman, when he first had read Louis's work, he thought he was literally dead. He had never, you know, Sid. Sid had literally thought Louis was dead when he first saw his work in magazines. And somehow, in some marvelous stroke of fate, here we are tonight, honoring Louis and. I think all the rest of the the objectivists and those people from that time, and that's wonderful and marvelous. And somehow it deserves to be noted. There are other people that we talked to in the objectivists here also. Well, I don't know everybody. Mike Heller. Mike Heller. It's pretty scary. Close your eyes and listen to the sound. <laughs> They're all looking at us too. <laughs> okay, uh, does anyone have a question or a comment or anything of that kind? If not, we can uh, just adjourn to the uh, cocktails or whatever and uh, talk. May I just uh, Jackson one McClough, quick of course. point? I'd love Jackson to see McClough. some active response apropos not how do we how uh, to push or create a PR for the use of this remarkable poet's work, but you know, during his lifetime there was a rather persistent cop-out with respect to uh, not just talking about him, but with taking on the uh, responsibility of, of of making a response to his work. I don't, it was those, one thing that Hugh Kenner, for instance, I think was one of the first critics of that authority, um, rather remarkably, in a rather perversely interesting way in the National Review, uh, in reviewing a, uh, a later work of W.H. Auden, Thomas de Cleo, and this, this particular text of uh, Louis Zukowski pointed out that, that formerly uh, Zukowski was in no competitive sense, but was, was an extraordinary master of, of formal agency in poetry. Whereas Auden in that period, I don't think that he quote, wanted it that way, but Auden would be used as the measure of what formal capacities a poet might have. And Zukowski was so much more remarkably the master in, in that measure. So that I'd hate to see him become as uh, simply a it was when Hugh Kenner, in, in, in very true homage to, to Zukowski, 
says that you know the next hundred or more years will be used in trying to elucidate etc. His text. I'd, I'd really hate to see that become the fact. Uh, in, 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 if it were only to be some kind of curious, like Joycean riddle, that one had to spend one's lifetime untangling. I, so I'd really, if this can, evening can serve any purpose more than a very simple human celebration, which in one obvious way is quite enough. I'd love to see the, the use of Zakovsky become more consistent and certainly more vocal. So if there are questions, now is the time and place to ask them. Phaidoma, by the way, the issue that, of, uh, that Hugh Seidman mentioned, shows a, an active beginning. The John Taggart and uh, Donald Byrd, others there, are doing an active, resourceful reading, which of course is the very first thing that any of us should be attempting. Amen. Yes. Oh, Amon. Amon Schwerner. Yes. I think it was a, a theoretic uh, difference of view uh, on, the, on the question of the measure of the line, on the question of the kind of prosody or the form view, as they quote from the positions that I read. Uh, I should tell you this, that it was T.S. Eliot wrote a recommendation for Louis for Guggenheim. So uh, uh, Eliot did respect Louis. Louis never got to Guggenheim. <laughs> 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 but of course, Eliot had forewarned Louis that he would probably not get it if he wrote the recommendation. What year was uh, that? Um, <laughs> I, I could look it up. It was either 1930 or three, one of those two. Um, in any case, um, Louis' essay, American Poetry 1910 to 1920, um, has um, oh, very laudatory comments about Eliot's work. As a matter of fact, Louis respected Eliot. Uh, when he was in London, he went to see Eliot. Uh, uh, he did uh, have some reservations about Eliot's 
um, conservative, I, I don't, by conservatism I don't mean political, uh, I mean his, in his writing, but uh, both he and Eliot um, respected each other and respected each other's work. Uh, Louis did not feel that Eliot's work was as uh, great or as influential as Pound or Williams's work, but uh, he felt that uh, it, it certainly was a very valuable contribution to American letters. Uh, he felt the same way about Cummings' work, and of course, uh, he greatly respected Marion Moore's work. Uh, and uh, she, in her turn, uh, respected Louis' work as well, too. I mean, she always described her books to Louis. She was very fond of Louis. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think the only one uh, that Louis had never corresponded or had had any close, uh, had never even met, was Wallace Stevens. Though, oddly enough, Marion Moore um, told us one day that uh, Stevens had, well, she had met him in the city and had remarked that he'd been reading Zukowski and liked the work. But Louis had never met Wallace Stevens. And, um, it wasn't only until the many years later, the latter part of his life, where he started to reread Wallace Stevens, and then he felt that, in, in a sense, he hadn't really um, paid as much attention as the work really should get. And uh, in this particular volume that Alan has of prepositions, there is no essay about Wallace Stevens, but um, University of California Press will be doing a reprint of this, plus additional essays, critical essays that Louis had written, and there is one for Wallace Stevens, and it's a very, very laudatory essay. Uh, it also goes into great detail about uh, all of Stevens's work. Uh, Louis particularly liked the book The Necessary Angel and so on. So that um, while um, in his youth he paid, he felt he paid very little attention to Stevens. He did make that correction later on. There was just that one comment on Eliot in which he yeah. said uh, that um, other modern poets had an English influence, perhaps via Eliot. In any case, their linear and stanzaic impalings do not possess Eliot's spark of traction's accomplishment. Yes, uh, he was very fond of Eliot's work. He felt that there was. Uh, no question that uh, it was very valuable and had a very important place in American letters. Yeah, I just wanted to add that one of the stories Louis told me that in 1922, when uh, The Wasteland was published, Mark Van Duren supposedly said to him, Louis, do you think Eliot is serious? And uh, Louis said that he had told Van Duren at that time, Mark, I think he's damn serious. Yes, Mark Van Duren was another very close friend of Louis. He had been Louis's instructor at Columbia College uh, the first year Louis was there, but, uh, but unfortunately, uh, Louis could never warm up to Van Duren's poetry, uh, but yet they were very um, good friends. They respected each other's work. I, I don't think Van Duren ever warmed up to Louis's poetry, but that, I mean, that didn't matter. I mean, they, uh, so when I began writing um, a Luther verse, Van Doren was my teacher, suggested I use the uh, Well, yes, Van Doren uh, would come to our house very frequently. 
but as I said, Louis, as a matter of fact, when Louis was getting together a test of poetry, he wanted very much to include at least one or two lines of Van Doren because he liked the man as a man. Uh, I, I think he found one line, but it, it took an awful lot of work. But Louis did like Mark Van Doren very much as a man and as a teacher, and uh, it was reciprocal. Van Doren was very cordial, and both Dorothy and Mark Van Doren were very friendly and very cordial. Uh, Louis didn't always uh, associate with presumably the greats. He had a, a great many close and intimate friends and people who were not poets. Uh, but if he felt that uh, there was an integrity and if he felt that uh, he liked them as human beings, uh, there was a great friendship which he kept up all his life. Robert Creedy was one of his Oh, Robert Creedy was one of his dearest friends. I mean, now, Robert Creeley has well, a very private now. niche <laughs> in Louis' spiritual world. Uh, I, if Louis had to pick the friends that were dearest and closest to him, it would be Ezra Pound and Robert Creeley and then William Carlos Williams, and then everybody else would fall into place. But uh, Robert Creeley even uh, dislodged William Carlos Williams for a while. <laughs> but I never knew that. <laughs> so what I'm curious about, what were the first texts of Robert's that, that uh, Louis liked? Oh, the... Uh, what was his discovery of Creeley? Um, what's that one that's a little... Which was done by the Divers Press, the... Um, mm. Oh, yeah. uh, Was it the kind of act of, or... Um, let's see, I kind of... Mallorca, it was, it was done in Mallorca, the Divers Press. Was it The Whip? Maybe? The Whip. The Whip. That was the first text that yeah. he got into. Yeah. And then the uh, mm -hmm. Book of Short Stories. The Gold yeah. The Gold mm -hmm. But then I should add that um, Creeley's um, displacing rhythm uh, was not necessarily because, uh, as I said, a, a question of whose poetry is better or, or, or not, but it was a question of a kind of rapport. He felt that he had a much greater metaphysical rapport with Robert Creedy than he did with Williams. And uh, Bill would very frequently argue with Louis. They didn't quite uh, see eye to eye about, oh, what books to read, what books not to read, and so on. Louis, uh, in addition to being a literary man, uh, was very learned in many branches of philosophy. And I, I don't just throw this off the top of my head, but um, he knew his Aristotle very well. His Spinoza, uh, well, that was his Bible. St. Thomas Aquinas, um, Wittgenstein. Uh, Louis didn't uh, just glance at, I mean, he really read philosophy as other people eat bread. So that, uh, and in Creeley, he felt there was this uh, rapport, this philosophical and metaphysical, and in, I mean, when I say Creeley, I mean Creeley's work. Uh, he felt that uh, there was this deep, uh, this intense metaphysical rapport, which he felt was in Creeley's work, uh, which he did not always feel was present in Eliot's work or uh, even Williams's work. Uh, he felt that in Pound's work, 
he felt that in a good deal of Mary Moore's work, but uh, in a different sense. Uh, he always thought of Mary Moore as one of the best male writers of American poets, you know. <laughs> but uh, uh, this was not to be disrespectful, but uh, he felt <laughs> she was an extraordinarily fine man. Uh, <laughs> and, and she was. Uh, now, this is not to say that he didn't esteem many other young people's work. He liked Robert Duncan very much. And there, in the case of Robert Duncan's work, uh, the one thing that bothered Louis very much about Duncan and Olson was the question of myth. Now, Louis could not uh, get that involved in, in mythology as uh, Duncan is. And that always troubled Louis. He tried to uh, understand it, or, uh, but it, it was something that he could not really uh, apply himself to, it, as he would just so naturally take to Creed's work or to, uh, to Pound's work or even some of Cummings' uh, work, which he liked. He felt that Cummings' work, uh, in a sense, had been very much neglected. But Many people, you know, weren't giving it the attention that they should give it. And the same with Wallace Stevens, of course. Uh, the thing that kept him uh, off Wallace Stevens' work at first uh, was all the philology at first. But uh, as I said, uh, later on in life, he uh, did change his mind about it and wrote a very laudatory essay on Stevens' work. What were his appreciations of Basil Bunker? Oh, Basil was a very intimate, a very close friend. You know, Louis uh, edited and uh, made suggestions, and Basil has always uh, conceded that. Uh, as a matter of fact, Louis did the same for Williams' work. It was Louis that uh, suggested the arrangement of the poems in Williams' The Wedge, which is why Williams dedicated it to Louis. Um, but there, Louis felt that Basil was an English poet and was probably the best English poet of the 20th century, but uh, it was not American poetry. He, he felt very strongly about it, that it was very characteristically English, not American. N not American in the sense that Williams was American, that Moore was American, that Duncan is American, and so on. Uh, he uh, makes that distinction very, uh, he was very keen about that and, and felt very intensely about it, uh, that there is that distinction between, uh, because of the English literary background from which Bunting derives, uh, as opposed to the Americans who, in a sense, uh, have a very different literary background. And even the American literary background, I mean, if you uh, go back to people like Edgar Allan Poe and uh, Henry James, well, James, you know, took himself off, to, in, in a sense, almost uh, disengaged himself from the American scene, though um, apparently he did regret it later on. Uh, but Louis felt there was that distinction between the American writer and the English writer, and the distinction stemmed uh, from the difference in background, the difference in, in literary heritage. 
important influence on, on a particular person. As I said, even though he didn't like Van Doren's poetry, but he liked them as a, an individual, and they kept up a very close friendship for many years. But uh, <coughs> the very fact that Mark Van Doren was always very pleasant to talk to was enough for Louis to, to want to know him, to want to speak with him. And in any case, uh, you know, this is all very academic because while today everyone may think Pound is the thing, nobody knows what anyone will think of Pound's work 100 years from now or 200 years from now, or what anyone will think of Lukowski's work or Lesnikov's work or, or anybody's work. So uh, the artist works because he must do that, because otherwise he dies. Uh, and he's compelled to do his art. That's the only reason. There, there's no other reason. And uh, whether or not it finds an audience, it really is no consequence. Uh, in that particular sense, I think Louis was a blessed creature. He was never concerned about finding a publisher, a reviewer, a critic. Uh, it didn't bother him. He wrote his poetry, and, and you know he could be very stubborn and uncompromised, really uncompromising. No editor would, was allowed to make any correction, not even to take out a comment or put in a comment. They either accepted the manuscript as he sent it in, or it was just it, it wasn't printed. Uh, but he wrote because that was what he enjoyed doing, and he had to do. Uh, the same is true with Charles Resnickoff. Charles Resnickoff wrote as he wrote because he had to write that way. And he preferred that to practicing law. It was, it was very simple. Now, you know, I must tell you this, which makes me very odd, but Charles Resnickoff and uh, Louis were very close friends. Uh, our last address in the city was very close to where the Resnickoffs lived. And uh, even when we lived lower down in the city, uh, Charles, who was a great walker, would walk past our house many times. And we would, if Charles didn't buzz the bell and come into the apartment, we very frequently met him on the street. So I don't think uh, more than a week or two would elapse, but we always met Charles, uh, either on his way to the NYU Law Library, or we met him because he was walking around uh, Central Park early in the morning or something. And um, he used to say, Louis, one of these days I'm going to sit down and I'm going to start reading A from the beginning to the end. You know, <laughs> I, I just read a line here and a line there. Charles had met, whereas there was not a line of verse that, or any of the prose that Charles wrote that Louis didn't read. But it was just in the makeup of, of the, these two men. When Louis received any book in the mail, any magazine, any single scrap of paper, he read it from the beginning <laughs> to the end. <laughs> but apparently Charles Resnickoff didn't feel impelled to read uh, the from the beginning. But that didn't uh, deter the friendship. They were still very good friends. As a matter of fact, there was not one concert of Paul's that Charles did not attend. Charles was probably Paul's greatest friend. And so that, uh, I mean, it, it's a, you know, 
to say, you know, did he like Matthew Puck's work? Did he like Salisbury's work? It really doesn't matter. I mean. Well, I was just going to say, one of the vivid memories I have of Louis is saying another, saying that Charles was the, one of the few poets that he thought had taught him anything. Um, I wanted, uh, as been pointed out to me, that Fielding Dawson is standing back there. I was wondering if he had anything that he might like to comment on or say or ask or anything of that nature. Fielding, I'm not sure that I heard everything you said because I am growing a little uh, deaf. Um, but if I were to say that Louis was totally um, immune to good reviews, I would be lying. And, and you know, everyone likes a good review. There is no question that everybody enjoys being told that you are good and your work is great, etc. So. Of course, uh, it's not just a matter of feeling flattered. Uh, it's a feeling of, um, of friendship, a feeling that whoever has read the work sees some, and even if he sees something in it which the writer himself has not felt or seen uh, in it himself, the reviewer may point out something which the writer had never been aware of as he was writing the work. So, um, of course, he was always pleased and certainly pleased by anything Fielding Dawson wrote. And even when Fielding Dawson would every now and then inject the name Zukowski into his own writings with some of his stories, there was no question that Louis always had a particular twinkle and a little twist at the corner of his mouth. But uh, what I mean is that generally speaking, he uh, did not look for good reviews for good pu um, publishers, bad publishers, you know, <laughs> as far as he was concerned, you know, good and bad, they were all the same, you know, the publishers. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and the same went for reviews. They, uh, very frequently he felt that, uh, you know, it, it was an imposition to ask anyone to review a book. That if one wanted to do it on his own, that was something else. Um, uh, when. Oh, it could be a hardship. I'm, I'm oh, no, no doubt about. Yes, of course. I'm no doubt about that. Yes, uh, to read one of Louis' books is, is a hardship. I don't deny that. I mean, I, I, I'm not trying to say that Zukowski is simple and you know, 
Uh, no, he didn't. Uh, I don't have to tell you that he didn't like roses are red and violets are blue or whatever they are. And, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I'm simply saying that uh, he wrote as he wanted to write, as he felt that was what he could do and how best he could do it. And for the rest, uh, the work will have its own destiny. It will have to find its own audience. Uh, I think, thank you, I think that uh, I just wanted to go through a few more people maybe and ask them if they had anything to say because it's kind of getting late and maybe we should just... You, may, may I just interpolate yeah. quickly? A friend of Basil Bunting just came up and, 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 and wanted me to emphasize how, how, how moved indeed Basil Bunting was to hear of Louis' death and would obviously be here tonight if he could and in the same issue of Padona you'll find a brief that very explicit homage in that sense. I remember, I think Basil Bunting at one point told us that, for example, characteristic of Louis was that despite the fact that he couldn't really locate Basil Bunting for a time in the world, and I guess Basil must have been in Persia. Yes, he uh, was in Persia. He, each book that was published, Louis set aside a copy for Basil with an yes, inscription. Yes, and he, yeah. he always gets correct. Yeah, so the very close and decisive yeah. friendship. But for many years, Bunting... Uh